Well, good morning. It is so good to be able to gather and worship this morning. I want to invite you to take your Bible and to go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning. To set the stage for what we'll be considering this morning, I want to share a little story uh, of something that took place early in my life in the ministry as a pastor. There were several senior adults that were at the church where I was pastoring at the time, and there was one in particular that God had just placed heavy on my heart um, because of some conversations of just just really wanting to know, did this man truly know Christ? Um, and so I spent some time with him. We went out to, uh, to, to a firing range. He, he enjoyed guns, and so we went out to do some firing. And, and while we were out there, I asked him, I'll just call him Ted for the sake of the story. I said, Ted, you know, uh, so when did you become a follower of Christ? And he said, well, I was baptized, and it was about 50 years earlier. I said, okay, I, I appreciate you sharing that with me. You know, before that, you know, was there a time in your life when, when you really felt like you came to a place where you had, had trusted Christ? And he kind of gave a, a non-answer to that. And, and then as I pushed just a little bit more, he looked me square in the eyes. And he said, peace at home was worth something. This was a man who had been a member of a church for 50 years. He fell ill, was in the hospital, went on hospice care. And I went to visit him and to talk about the gospel because my my soul was burdened for this man, for Ted. And so we went and we talked and and we went right to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where, where Paul says, I put forward to you of what was of first importance, that Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, that he was dead, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he was resurrected. And I, and I asked him, I said, Ted, do, do you believe these things? And he looked at me and he said, it seems a little fantastic, doesn't it? A little too good to, to be true. And I wish I could tell you that, that Ted then gave his life to Christ, but that's, that's not how that story ends. But I look at, at a man like Ted, and I think that there are many men and women like Ted who for any number of reasons have said that the church of Jesus Christ is good. And they want to be in association with what is good. That there are men and women who, in order to remain kind of part of a family group and to not be kind of on the outside of that group, they they just kind of stay in to, to keep peace with the family. And then there are men and women who, when honest, they look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in complete honesty they would say, it almost seems a little fantastic, almost made up. But yet, yet they persist in coming to church. Yet they they persist to be with the family and to be in the discussions and to be part of, of the religion of the family. And they're wanting maybe to believe, but are struggling with doubt. If that's you today, If that's a description of you, I want you to know that not only are you in in good company of those who have walked before you, but going all the way back to the days right after the resurrection, there were men and women just like you 
who recognized that there was something good and they didn't want to be apart from it, but they were struggling to really believe this gospel. And so I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 20 to verse 19, and then I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, because what we hear today is not Chad's thoughts about God, but God speaking to man about himself. And so I want you to hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. The Word of the Lord. When it was evening of that first day of the week, The disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the incredible grace that you show to us all, including those who, like Thomas, were struggling to believe the historical truth of the resurrection. Meet us today, Jesus, in your word. And bring your peace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, if you find yourself wanting to follow this Jesus, if you find yourself wanting to believe this gospel, but maybe like Thomas, finding yourself somewhat on the the outside of true heartfelt belief, I want to walk you through this passage and for you to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's that's who I want you to keep your eyes locked on throughout this passage. 
Don't, don't focus your eyes on Thomas and his questions. Don't, don't focus your eyes on the, on the disciples and their fear of the Jews. I want you to lock your eyes in on Jesus this morning in this text. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to consider him because that is who you are considering this morning. Each and every one of us. Our consideration is Jesus and so what we see, first of all, in verses 19 through 23 is this. Jesus leads with grace. Jesus leads with grace. You see, I don't know anybody that wants to, to follow a leader that is harsh. I don't know anybody that wants to follow a leader that, that is heavy-handed and, and hypocritical. I, I don't know anybody that wants to follow a leader that is constantly demonstrating that he does not understand the needs of those he's leading. But in every way, Jesus, in just the span of a few verses, demonstrates the kind of leader he is. And I promise you today, every one of you, that this is a leader you want to follow. This is the one you need to trust with everything in your life and give it all to him and follow him with everything you've got. Let's walk through it. When it was evening on that first day of the week, which would have been a Sunday, and so if anybody's been looking for a biblical proof text for why we ought to have Sunday night service, it's right here. Okay, so there you go. That was free. When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The first truth that we see right there in verse 19 is that Jesus comes to them. This is, this is a leader that comes to them. He could have, because there's already been the testimony. If you go back up to verses 11 down through 18, there's already been the testimony of Mary Magdalene that the tomb is empty, that, that Jesus is alive. And so it should have been the case that the disciples were like, we've got to find him. You, you would expect that they would be combing through the area looking for Jesus. But what does it say? They have closed themselves in a room behind a locked door. Even though they have firsthand testimony of an empty grave, of, of angelic conversation, of seeing Jesus, they're in a locked room. Now, you would think Jesus would say, man, if this is the kind of guys that y'all are going to be after spending three years with you, then, then I'll start over. I'll, I'll find a new group of followers. But look how gracious he is that he comes to them. I want you to know, Jesus, Jesus always comes to you where you are. That's the testimony of every believer is that Jesus came and found me. When I was lost, when I was wandering away, when I was going my own way, Jesus in his grace came to me. And the way we see that most supremely is the gospel itself. Rather than God rightfully saying, you need to work your way up to me, in his infinite grace, he sent his one and only son down to us to live in our broken world filled with broken people. And he came and dwelt with us. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus comes to us. 
And he does it in specific ways that come right to where you are. He knows where you are. He sees every one of you. And he knows exactly where to meet you. But then notice in verse 19, he says, peace be with you. This is another way that Jesus leads with grace. He speaks peace to them. I mean, think about it. He could have said, guys, really a locked door? Fear of the Jews? I've defeated sin and death. I mean, what do you have to fear? The Jews handed me over to be crucified. I was crucified by the Romans, but look, I'm here. What are you guys doing? And shamed them and inflicted guilt on them. But what does Jesus lead with? He says, peace to you. That is the grace of our Savior. Is that he comes and he speaks grace. He speaks peace. He speaks wholeness over us who are broken and incomplete. He speaks grace. Look at verse 20. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He's patient with them. He's patient with them. He, he knows that they are struggling to really believe what it is they're seeing. And so he takes time. They don't have to ask. He, he knows that there's this part of them that is like, is this real? Are we hallucinating? He says, I wanna, I wanna show you the marks. I, I wanna show you the wound on my side. And then it says, and then they rejoiced. Jesus is patient with them. You know, if you've got true intellectual reservations to the gospel, I want to first of all say that sorry that we as believers often are very impatient. Sometimes we, we do the opposite of what our Savior Jesus does. And, and sometimes we just say, well, then if you don't, if you got those questions, then I don't have time for you. And sorry that sometimes we as believers do that. Because Jesus demonstrates a different way. He takes time to, to demonstrate the historical reliability of the crucifixion and the resurrection to his own disciples. The men that you would think would have most easily believed are at this point the most guarded in believing. And so he takes time to speak to them. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them which communicates a nearness, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus leads with grace because he gives to them peace. He gives to them the Spirit. And we see the, the full manifestation of the giving of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But in this moment, what I want you to keep your, lock, your eyes locked on is this Jesus who comes to those who are afraid, who comes to those and gives, who, who really he should be asking for them to give to him. He gives to them over and over and over again. In this one simple passage, we see that Jesus in grace is leading them and then he empowers them to go. He says, as the Father has sent me, I'm also sending you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jim Elliott and his wife Elizabeth were missionaries to the Alka Indians. The Alka, at this point in history, were known for being extreme savages. They would, they would kill just about anyone. 
And there was even the rumors of, of cannibalism. But Jim and Elizabeth knew they were, they were called to go. And so they went. And teaming together with others, that they were able to do some amazing work from airplanes where they would do creative things of, of coming to them and they learned some of the Alka phrases of saying, we are friends, we are friends. And so they would yell it from the airplanes and they would, they would come down and, and so they're coming to them. And, and then they would lower gifts and they came up with a way to lower a gift down to the, to the middle of the village by, by doing the airplane kind of in a circle going around to where finally that gift would just hover right there in the middle and the Alcas could get it. And then finally they would land their airplane on a sliver of beach along a stream and then God opened the door finally for them to be able to speak the message to the Alca and begin to have a relationship. But then things turned and the Alca did what everybody said they would do. They killed all the missionaries. Jim, Nick Saint, others that were with them were all speared to death. And it looks like a tragic ending, right? It, it reminds me of, 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 of what happened on Friday with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But, but I want you to see how it is that when Christ becomes the leader of a life and of a marriage, how even after losing her husband, Elizabeth Elliot sensed and knew that God was leading her and her daughter to go back to live with the Alka, to go to them just as Christ came to us, to bring them gifts just as God has given gifts to us, to be patient with them as they asked questions and they, they were having to delineate between the former gods that they knew and then the current God that was being proclaimed. And then to lead them one by one, by one, until all of the Alka came to Christ. And then they began to become missionaries, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So much so that one of the men who speared Jim Elliott to death went on tour with Stephen Curtis Chapman in order to bring this gospel even here in the United States of America. That's the power of Christ in the life of a person when he is in the lead. He changes everything. And so if you're here today and you're wondering, is this a savior worth following? I ask you to consider how he treats fearful men who've been with him but have abandoned him and are hiding. And I ask you to consider the testimony of a missionary who demonstrates the same way of life to even the men and women who killed her husband. Is that one that you would want to follow, one that can change others and change you in that dramatic way? I think the answer is yes. This is a Savior worth following. But then I want you to see specifically how he deals with Thomas. You see, Jesus knows what we need to have faith. Jesus knows exactly what you and I need in order to have faith. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him. So he's having to get this, this, this testimony. We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the marks of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. But see, here's what we know because verse 26 tells us, Thomas was a man who truly wanted to believe. 
You see, when I told that opening story about Ted, I think he truly wanted to believe. I think he truly wanted to believe, but because of his, his science background, he, he found himself in this conflict. But yet he didn't divorce himself from gathering with the church. And maybe you're in that same position today. You've been gathering with the church for maybe 50 years, but there's still something that's keeping you separated from Jesus. Because it says right here, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. In other words, he hadn't given up meeting with the disciples, even though he didn't believe them. And he was struggling to believe. He didn't forsake gathering together. And that is to be commended. But notice that Jesus continued to lead with grace because the doors were still locked. I mean, think about that. The disciples have now seen Jesus. They know that Jesus has defeated death itself, but yet there they are still behind locked doors. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I mean, Rick, at this moment, I would expect Jesus to be like, really guys? <laughs> what else do I have to do? I mean, you guys ought to be out there proclaiming that I'm alive and you're here behind locked doors? But no, Jesus speaks to them and says, peace be with you. And that's a message also to doubting Thomas, as we call him. Peace be with you, he says to Thomas. And then he moves into this precision point. Notice, Thomas doesn't say anything. Jesus speaks to Thomas and says, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. You know what's so significant about that is even though Jesus wasn't present in verse 25, when Thomas said, I've got to put my finger here and my hand here or I will never believe. Jesus was in the room. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said. He knew exactly what Thomas needed to believe and to garner that faith that he called for in saying, don't be faithless, but believe. When I was 21 years old, I had the chance to spend a summer in the country of Burkina Faso. It's a small, poor country in West Africa. And while there... I wish I could say that it was an incredible trip where we saw many people come to faith and, and it was just incredible experience as a young adult, but it was not. I got sick a lot. I had lots of amoebas and parasites and E. coli and all this, which means I felt horrible most of the time. And the same was true for a lot of my teammates. And, and the summer was hot. It was about 120 degrees during the day. We spent about four hours a day just trying to find shade under these leafless trees, you know, that we called Satan bushes, you know, out there because they were just full of thorns, no leaves. And it was just like, oh, this is such a difficult place to be. But about the fifth week while we were there, one of my teammates came and said, this was a 10-week commitment that we had made. At about the halfway point, he said, God's calling me back to the United States. <laughs> me too. 
And it was a moment of crisis. And I went and, I mean, absolutely fell apart before the Lord. I went and got alone with God, and I was like, God, all I want to do is go home. I'm so tired of being sick. I don't feel like I'm of any use here. I've not been good at learning some of the language like other people have. And God, I just, I just want to go home. I'm tired of being here and being hot and being sick. God, please. And there was this prompting in my heart to open a note that an amazing young lady had given me. She had given me 10 notes, one for each week that I would be in Burkina Faso. This was a girl that I hoped one day that I would marry, and I did. But at this point, we weren't even dating. But she had sent me with 10 notes, one for each week that I was there. But I was, I was determined that I was not going to let some girl be my strength during the summer. That only the Lord was going to be my strength. But there was this nudging inside of my heart to, to open the note. Because I'd only allowed myself to open them on Sundays. And this was like a Tuesday or something like that. And I was like, no, Lord, you are my strength. I, I need you in this moment. And there was just this nudging, open the note. So I finally took the note and I opened it and it said this, when I did summer missions, it was about this point that I was ready to give up. But the Lord brought me to this passage of scripture and I hope it encourages you in whatever's going on in your summer. And the verse was this, Galatians 6, 9, do not grow weary in doing good for at the proper time you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. I've never worshiped like I did in that moment, because God in his grace, two and a half months before my lowest day, put it in the heart of an amazing woman that I would go on to marry, to write those specific words, that specific verse, at a moment where my faith was failing and I wanted to throw in the towel, God met me in the desert. And I'm telling you, on the grounds of his word here, on the grounds of my own life experience with the Lord, he sees you. He sees you. He knows exactly what you need to hear from him. Church family, this is the importance of speaking the word to one another. That's why we're called in the scriptures to, to speak to one another in spiritual songs and in hymns and in passages of scripture. To not forsake gathering together and, and being under the word. This is the importance of it because once we're armed with the word, we're meant to share it. Too often we've seen daily bread is only to be consumed and not shared. Brothers and sisters, Jesus sees exactly where others are and he's calling us to speak the word and to speak it in love. But if you're here today like Thomas, can I just tell you, he knows exactly what you need. He sees you where you are and he speaks peace to you. But then, in a gentle way, he tells Thomas, and speaking to us today, he says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, that would pertain to everyone after the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. That we, every one of us in this room, would have to be in that category of being blessed because we've not seen, but we believe. 
But mark it down. We have great evidence, firsthand testimony, transcript, manuscript, if you will, of the testimony of those who saw him, experienced his words, touched him, ate with him, talked with him, that Jesus is alive. But then notice how then John steps back from the narrative of this Thomas passage of, of really communicating how Jesus saw Thomas and, and was able to give to Thomas, that doubting Thomas, exactly what he needed to believe. And he steps back to all of us and he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. And what he's talking about is the entire gospel of John. He's saying this is long, it's 21 chapters long, but there's so much more that could have been written. There's so many other signs, so much more evidence that Jesus is a leader worth following, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus was resurrected. There's so much more that could be written. But these, that which is written, are written so that you, we, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the King, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see what the gospel of John so clearly communicates is this. That you and I are in brokenness. We live in a broken world, but the scriptures are so clear that we ourselves are broken people. But that was not God's design. John 1.1 harkens back to the very beginning, kind of throwing us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible so that we know that there was God's good design. And God's good design included a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. But somehow we departed from this right relationship with God and this right relationship with one another. And now we're in this broken world filled with broken people, each and every one of us. And so how did we get there? Well, the Bible answers that question by saying that sin entered into the world. And it entered in through the very two, first two people. And what that, what, what that is, what sin is, is me going my way rather than God's way. So anytime that, that I say, I, I want to do relationships this way, or I want to do my, my, my finances this way, or I want to do my life this way, rather than God's way, I'm in sin. And so all of us have sinned. And now we're in this broken world. And here's what we try to do. In our broken world, we try to clean it up. We try to clean up our lives. We try to clean up our behavior. All of these things we do to try to clean up and get back to God's design. Right relationship with God, right relationship with one another. And the more we try, the worse we get because we become prideful. And we become self-righteous. And we actually get further and further away from God rather than more and more humble, as we sang earlier, on our face before him. And that ought to leave us in a helpless state. We ought to be saying to ourselves, is there any way back? We, we ought to be left like Thomas saying, I'd have to see, I'd have to literally be rescued by Jesus in order to be brought back to God's design. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's exactly what God has done. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the good news of the gospel. That God sent his one and only son who came into our broken world, but he wasn't broken. The scriptures teach he was without sin. And he lived this sinless, perfect life, his relationship with God, the exact way that God intended a relationship with God and man. His relationship with others, exactly the way God intended a relationship with others. But then at the end of his perfect life, he did something. He took the sentencing, the consequence of our sin. You see, the Bible is so clear that God is a just God. You see, it would not be justice for God to say, well, let's see if your good acts outweigh your bad acts when we stand before him. And so many of us, that's the economy system we're hoping that God uses, that we can put enough on the good scale to outweigh the bad scale. But I want to ask you, is that how you want a judge in a court of law here in the United States to operate? That if someone perpetrates a murder, to stand before the judge and say, judge, look at the thousands and thousands of good things that I've done. And then there's this one bad thing. There's this one bad thing. So God, so, so judge, are you telling me that all of these good things don't matter at all in light of this one bad thing? And then if a judge looks at that criminal and says, you know what, you're right. You've done so many good things. There's no way I can hold this one bad thing against you. Is that justice? Not at all. And yet, that's what we expect God to do. To basically just sweep all of our sin under the rug rather than dealing with it. And that's why Jesus died, because the Bible teaches that the sentence of sin, the offense of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And the only way we get the gift is because Jesus paid our sentence. He served our sentence for us. And that sentence was death. He was crucified on a cross. He, he himself became a curse for us so that we could be liberated from the curse of sin and death. That's the good news. And then he was buried in a tomb according to the scriptures. And on the third day, that day that we celebrate today, he was resurrected, seen by many witnesses. Amen. He was seen by many witnesses. They ate with him. They talked with him. There's all of these accounts of their experience with Jesus. And then he ascended into heaven with the promise that one day he will come. And the Bible teaches so clearly that we now live in that space between his ascension and his one day return. And so today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you and I are invited to turn from our sin, just being honest with God. God, I'm a sinner. God, I need you to forgive me of my sin. And then turning and trusting in Jesus and looking to him and to what he accomplished for us. And the Bible says that when we acknowledge our sin and we place our faith in Jesus, confessing him as Lord, that the old is gone, the new has come, and we begin to grow into God's design. We be start to become the man or the woman or the couple or the family that God intends us to be in Christ.
And so my question for you is this. Are you near God's design because you have personally been honest with God about your sin and need for salvation and trust in Jesus? Or are you far from God, still in your sin, still in your brokenness, trying to clean up your, your life and your world and trying to get back to God on your own? Now, if you find yourself answering, well, I'm, I don't feel like I'm that far. I don't feel like I'm that close. I'm somewhere in the middle. Know this, the Bible speaks in, in defining terms of either we are in the light or we are in darkness. We, we are either a child of God or we are a child of Satan. We, we are either a slave to sin or we are free in Christ. You are either dead in your sin or you are alive in Jesus. And so if you had to pick one of the two, which would you say? And my question to you in this moment is if you are honest enough, like, like Ted was, in those conversations that I had with him, to say, I'm in my brokenness, then I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to trust Jesus today. None of us, not one of us, know how many more days we have in this life. We all like to live as though we were invincible and immortal. But that is not true. This life is brief, but it is so meaningful. But you will, you will find that you wasted it if you spend it on yourself rather than giving it to Christ. And so I invite you in this moment, I invite us all to stand in this moment and for this to be a moment of response for each and every one of us this morning. To spend time in prayer. But if you're here today, and in honesty, you could say, I have been far from God in my brokenness. I invite you as a sign that I am leaving the grave. I'm leaving sin and death. I want to invite you to walk forward and allow me just to have a moment to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you in front of a group of people, but know this, the people in this room are praying for you in this moment, and they will be to you family. So let us pray. Father, in this moment, in the stillness of this moment with, with music, Father, just, just playing, Father, in this, this time of worship, God, this, may this be a moment of surrender. May this be a moment of celebration in our hearts for we who have trusted Christ to be reminded that this, this is our gracious leader who speaks to us in grace and then empowers us to go. But Lord, for the one who is like Thomas, who needed so desperately to know the truth of the resurrection, I pray that today, through your word, you have spoken to that man or that woman. And that today would be the day that they say like Thomas, my Lord and my God. If that's you today, every eye is closed, heads are bowed across this room. If that's you, I invite you to come forward right now. Because today is the day that you want to give your life to Jesus. You want to go from being far away to being close and near to God. If that's you, come forward in this moment.